You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this edition of our RSAC 365 podcast series. Thanks so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Casey Zirkus, Senior Content Manager with RSA Conference. And today I am joined by Brandon Pugh, Director, Cybersecurity and Emerging Threats at R Street Institute, and Megan Stifel, Chief Strategy Officer at the Institute for Security and Technology. Before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that here at RSAC, we host podcasts twice a month, and I encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review us on your preferred podcast app so that you can be notified when new tracks are posted. And now I'd like to have our guests do a quick introduction before we dive into today's topic. Brandon, let's start with you. Well, thank you, Casey, and to the RSA conference for for hosting this. Um, I mean, before I begin, I have to say I'm excited for the conference next month. It's hard to believe that's about a month away. I know. Um, so, but more relevant to today, it's uh, this is an important conversation given the the widespread coverage and potential changes brought about by the national cybersecurity strategy. Uh, of course, it's always nice to to join Megan too. But by way of background, I'm fortunate to lead the R Street Institute's Cyber and Emerging Threats team, which includes a focus on cyber policy, data privacy and security, and, and workforce and diversity. Um, and for those that are not familiar, uh, R Street's a nonpartisan, nonprofit think tank uh, engaged in policy research in support of free markets and limited effective government. I've been at R Street for about a year and a half now, but beforehand I held roles with the FBI, uh, the Army, and I served in local county and state elected office. So thrilled to be here, Casey, and, and also to, to join Megan. Welcome, Megan. Thanks so much for having me, Casey. I am Megan Stiefel. I serve as the Chief Strategy Officer at the Institute for Security and Technology. Like R Street, we are also a uh, nonpartisan think tank. We, though, are based on the West Coast, and our mission is to outpace emerging security threats. Largely, we do that through focusing on the intersection of security and technology. And our work is really based on three core pillars. One is thinking about the geopolitics of technology. So, here in particular, considering the United States relationship with China. The second pillar is catastrophic risk, where some of our work looks at issues such as the intersection of command and control around nuclear weapons um, and the impact that, for example, artificial intelligence will have as we move forward uh, with those capabilities. And the third pillar, which is where I spend most of my time, is the future of digital security. And there, uh, IST conducts a number of activities, including the Ransomware Task Force, which we were fortunate to convene in April of 2021 and continue to lead through this year and unfortunately, probably several more years. And before I was at IST, I was the Global Policy Officer at the Global Cyber Alliance. I held a role at Public Knowledge prior to that. And then prior to that, spent over a decade between the legislative and executive branches, having uh, most recently served in government as the Director for International Cyber Policy at the National Security Council staff and previously as Director for Cyber Policy at the National Security Division at the Department of Justice. So I'm excited to talk about uh, today's strategy and to be here with all of you. Thanks for having me. Of course. And we are excited to have both of you here with us today. And certainly when the White House issued its national cybersecurity strategy just a few weeks ago, it created quite a buzz. And it's since prompted a lot of questions, not the least of which was why does the U.S. need a cybersecurity strategy? And according to the World Economic Forum, robust cybersecurity is key to building on the promise of emerging technologies to enable growth and shared prosperity while minimizing the perils they pose. 
I'd love to hear more from each of you on why you think the U.S. needs this strategy. Megan, let's start with you. Thanks. Right. One might say, I feel like we already have a strategy. Why do we need another one? And and there is some truth to that, um, both for kind of historic reasons um, and for consistency with, with prior practice. Uh, this administration has chosen to also issue a cybersecurity strategy. There was a strategy released by the prior administration. And prior to that, we, we had a number of kind of subordinate types of documents. For example, the international cyber strategy, which was released in 2011, I believe. Um, but for one thing, we're, we're, this administration is reiterating the priorities that it sets, not only domestically, but really for the world. And I think that's where my value in, in strategies like this is seen. We, as the United States, do have a leadership opportunity, and I would argue responsibility for having brought forward the internet and email and all of the great things that we now rely on. Um, unfortunately, they also require all of us here to be talking about security because of, in many cases, the way we chose to, to innovate those capabilities. So as a result, I think the United States has this obligation to be a leader um, around cybersecurity, and that involves many elements, which we'll talk about. But at the end of the day, we're setting forth the objectives that we would like to see, the values that we would like to see, and the goals that we know we need to achieve and reach in order to make sure that the future of the internet is more secure than it is today. So I really were sending a message to the world by issuing strategies like these. Yeah, and, and I largely agree with Megan. Um, and even to take a step back, we see a number of strategies across the federal government, um, you know, from national security to the Department of Defense specific ones. So the national cybersecurity strategy is just one example, and like Megan alluded to, we've had them in past administrations. This one's a little unique because of the role the National Cyber Director has played in it in conjunction with other key federal cyber actors. Um, but then, you know, it goes without saying, there's a lot of helpful things coming about with this strategy. It's setting a vision to move forward with, identifying our priority areas. And to Megan's point, it's setting a signal on where we're going and what's important to us. And we know cyber threats are not going away, which is unfortunate, but the world we live in. Um, so it's important to have a strategy to have a cohesive way going forward. But I think arguably, if not more important, is really the implementation of this strategy. And I can elaborate on that later, but it's helpful to have a vision, but it's another thing to actually see how that's executed. So uh, while I'm generally supportive of the strategy, there's definitely concerning parts of it as well, which I can expand upon later. But just to flag two kind of niche areas that I was thrilled to see included, uh, one being the data security mention. Uh, that's a passion of mine in terms of what are some of the risks around the collection use of data uh, in this framework or, or strategy, I should say, definitely included um, a call for action there. And it's also thorough to see the modernization and improvement in government systems. Uh, too often times, government, I think, is quick to tell the private sector and others what to do. Uh, meanwhile, they're often uh, vulnerable themselves. So I was thrilled to see an emphasis here on strengthening federal IT networks because We've made improvements, but there's definitely a long way to go there. It certainly does feel like there's a long way to go. Um, you know, every incremental improvement, you know, when you look back and look at the big picture, it feels like, oh my gosh, there's so much more to do. And there's been great effort to make this strategy digestible with many outlining the five pillars, um, defend critical infrastructure, disrupt and dismantle threat actors, shape market forces to drive security and resilience, invest in a resilient future, and forge international partnerships to pursue shared goals. While these five pillars do simplify the strategy, when we think about how to bring each of these goals to fruition, it does feel like an enormous undertaking. So, in your opinion, what does implementation look like in the short and long term? 
You know, I would say this is a robust strategy. I mean, while there's five pillars, there's many strategic objectives under each pillar. So it'd be one thing to even just meet the five, uh, then, you know, numerous sub uh, categories under each. Uh, and really, each arguably could have its own team. Um, so it is going to take a lot of work and a lot of coordination to make this a reality. And I think coordination is going to be essential, not just making this a federally driven approach, but making sure industry and civil society are involved along the way. I mean, there was definitely engagement while this is being developed. But I don't think it was to the extent it could have been. So I'm hopeful moving forward, um, we'll almost take an approach like CISA has in terms of like robust engagement. Um, but I think there's three other areas too to flag. We know this is going to lead to additional documents and strategies. There's several mentions of that within this overall strategy. For instance, uh, strategic objective 4.6, not to be too specific, calls for action on the cyber workforce. Um, and that's kind of furthering the national cyber workforce and education strategy that has been ongoing. Um, so I expect to see continued movement there. Uh, secondly, we know there are certain parts that are going to require congressional action or at least congressional consideration. Time will tell if members on the Hill are behind some of these, especially those that call for more regulation and shifting liability. But there's only so much I think the White House can do unilaterally or through federal agency authority. And I think the last and something that's really important to me is just taking inventory of what we have now. So this strategy does call for harmonization, deregulation, but it's going to be another thing to make sure that actually happens. We have so many regulations and federal agency actions now that we do need to just take an assessment of what we have and see how we can simplify these and potentially streamline them. I would say that, as you noted in your question, there will be short-term and long-term actions that really need to run in parallel and be very well interconnected um, and collaborative, right? So we don't want the liability provisions running siloed off from other elements of the strategy. But as Brandon noted, for me, one of the biggest challenges, but really I think it's an opportunity, right, is for this administration to, to really build upon and solidify to the point of building kind of foundationable structures, policies, and practices around operational collaboration with the private sector, um, as well as the other actions that the government needs in order to fulfill the objectives of this strategy. For example, the discussion at the end about securing the internet for the future and thinking about foundational capabilities that need to be re-examined in order to ensure that, as we said at the beginning of our conversation, the future internet is more secure than the current internet. Unlike you know the time when I came into government and we were really focused on the war on terror, combating al-Qaeda, there the government was in a much different position when it came to information. It had a lot of tools at its disposal, most of which it still has. But here, in the case of cybersecurity risk, as we all talk about, there's that 85% statistic that the private sector owns 85% of critical infrastructure. There's a much different relationship that the government needs to build with the private sector with that in mind, because they really, we really depend on critical infrastructure, not only for our kind of day to day operations, our clean water, our clean energy system of the future, but also for our business, right? Our supply chains, our education systems. And we are still struggling, I think, though we've been talking about operational collaboration and public private partnerships for decades to get beyond in some cases, kind of the lip service of that and get to real action. At IST, we're really focused on thinking about what are those barriers that limit uh, the private sector from collaborating with the government in a manner and at scale that will help us to combat these criminals and nation state actors who are really leveraging this still nascent relationship between public and private sector actors beyond, you know, kind of basic information sharing to taking actions consistent with civil liberties and privacy, 
that signal that we will not tolerate the misuse and abuse of our critical infrastructure, and we're going to support our partners in protecting theirs. And just to follow up on one of Megan's points, yeah, I think this strategy is going to need to walk, or implementation of the strategy is going to need to walk a fine line because when we don't want to do away with this partnership model and embracing a culture where private industry wants to work with government and vice versa. But the strategy does take a heavy regulatory enforcement approach. So I do have a potential concern is that if that would maybe tarnish that reputation. I mean, implementation, I think, is going to be key around that to make sure that this isn't seen as just government coming in and trying to disrupt some of the positive relationships that already exist. So I think that's going to be a key area for ONCD as well as their partners to, to be mindful of. I'm glad you mentioned ONCD because I attended a session with Camille Stewart-Gloucester and Suzanne Nielsen last week at the WESIS conference. And, you know, Camille made the point, I think, quite accurately that currently cybersecurity feels like somebody else's responsibility, right? And it's the government's job. It's my employer's job. Um, it isn't really something that the individual is feels connected to, right? And that is certainly one barrier to success in rolling out the strategy. And, and I know, Megan, you pointed out like the, the challenges of the public and private partnerships, right? So what are some other barriers to success in rolling out this strategy that we want to be mindful of so that we can sort of plan for overcoming those obstacles? It's key to make a plan in terms of how the federal government is going to look to get buy-in because this shouldn't be a one-way approach where it's the federal government driving this. Ideally, it will be a collaboration between all relevant stakeholders. And I think that will be key because I kind of alluded to this earlier. There are definitely the actions, the White House, including ONCD, and all the federal agents can take unilaterally. But there are going to be some that they do need external support from. Um, like, like I was mentioning, some will require congressional action. So I think if they want any hope of those going through, it's needed to be a convincing message on how this is going to help cybersecurity, but then also not just add to a regulatory uh, burden and increase the size of, of government. So I think that'll be a key thing. Um, I am concerned too, and I hate to harp on some of my past points, but there definitely are positives in what has come about in terms of this public-private partnership model. To me, the, the document almost has put a too much of a cynical stance on that, saying, I'm reading between the lines. This isn't quoted from the document, of course, but it almost comes across as it's failed in most circumstances. Uh, and that's the reason we need to go to a heavy regulatory model. Um, I think there's definitely areas where that hasn't always worked, but there are cases where it has worked. So I do think it's a matter of getting that balance right going forward. And if um, this is an, an R Street position, but if we were going to add more regulation, the, the follow-up question should be is, is there a way to streamline what we have, take away what we have, maybe lean on an industry best practice so we're not reinventing the wheel? So I do think those are some like practical considerations. And then even if we get into some of the niche areas, like the liability shifting and putting liability on manufacturers of software that is insecure. Uh, and many people have come out and said, that's great. We've been calling for that for years. I don't want to sound too cynical of that. There's definitely merit to that approach, I think, but there's just as many questions around it. So rather than moving forward, I'm not saying ONCD would do this. They have wonderful people there, but there's so many questions to explore before that even becomes a reality. Like, you know, even the safe harbor provision, how would that work? How do we evaluate what level of insecurity is met? How do we balance, you know, how much responsible we're putting on the manufacturer themselves? Obviously, those that are making software and devices should be putting out secure products. But in some cases, the reality is bad actors are 
always going to try to exploit them. So how much we put on the manufacturer versus on the bad actor that's looking to exploit them. So that's just some initial thoughts with that, you know, to avoid trying to, to ramble here. I can always talk about this strategy, but curious if Megan has any as well. I think they are, there are a number of barriers, but I think because we do have kind of this crouched sense of things, at least I know I and some others do when we think about cybersecurity, um, I try to think of barriers as opportunities to overcome and, and surpass. So I, I think one of the key barriers is one that, that we've touched on a few times in this conversation, which is there are elements of this strategy that will not immediately appeal to industry. And thinking about potentially imposing liability, discussions around regulation. Um, so that the biggest barrier, I think, is going to be ensuring that this um, administration goes overboard to include key stakeholders in the development and implementation. Um, those partic- two particular issues, I think there's, you know, we're not going to see those in the, by the time of the end of 2024, um, liability shifting and significant regulatory changes. I think the National Cyber Director, Kemba Walden, has, has said as much. We know that this is a long-term strategy and we won't achieve success on all of these issues overnight. Um, so this administration really needs to work hard. And I think there has been a good track record, I would say, by the government in the past decade of bringing a table together and creating the space for there to be multi-stakeholder consultations. I think the best example of that is the cybersecurity framework, um, which was issued in 2013, 14 uh, timeframe, 2014, I guess, and is now undergoing its second revision. So I think the administration should leverage the lessons learned from that experience, really kind of build upon that experience as it works to ensure that it not only hears the concerns of relevant stakeholders, but takes those concerns into consideration as it thinks about implementation. There have been tremendous gains, I would say, in this space, I think. And so, you know, notwithstanding what I was saying earlier about challenges around operational collaboration and public-private partnership, we do have a number of success stories. It's a matter of really building on those success stories. And as I was saying, we need to develop, you know, a connective tissue is a very close knit. But when I say close knit, I think we, again, have this obligation as the United States to ensure that our public-private collaboration respects the values that we espouse. It needs to have robust privacy and civil liberties protections in place. And we need to talk publicly about what those are and where we succeed in implementing those and where at times we may not succeed. Uh, because again, we we can be an example, not only for our partners, but also for those nations that don't believe the same things that we believe about the way the internet should operate. I love that. And I love the idea of the connective tissue, right? And again, to go back to the session with Camille and Suzanne last week, you know, they talked about the effort to educate and reach K to 12. And I think that's such an important piece of, you know, changing that perspective on what cybersecurity is and how each of us is responsible for it. And I think that will only help to change the next generation in the future of uh, the professionals in the workforce. If you don't mind, Casey, just to expand upon your K to 12 point. Sorry, I know I'm going off topic here. No, you're fine. Yeah, I, I don't want to guess what Camille is going to include in her strategy, but you know, based on I know some of the past work and even the reference in the in the strategy, I think the K to twelve piece is key. It's uh, been unfortunately something we haven't put enough emphasis on late, uh, you know, in past years, past decades. I really should say. I think that's the opportunity to get students interested in cybersecurity long term. That way, the first time they're not seeing the opportunity, you know, is after even potentially even after college, getting them involved. Uh, We see school districts starting as early as first grade. I think that's terrific. And that type of curriculum and exposure should go throughout high school. 
I mean, it won't be an immediate solution to our workforce, but that's obviously a long-term solution. Absolutely. You know, and I think about when I was a kid and, you know, this Nancy Reagan's campaign of just say no and these commercials of, you know, this is your brain, this is your brain on drugs and this national effort to keep kids off of drugs. And, you know, is there something akin to that that we can do as part of a national strategy to inform kids about the need for them to recognize the role that they play in cybersecurity and, you know, their digital responsibilities as they carry around these phones everywhere they go. Um, So it just, it really has my wheels spinning because as a former educator, it's really, I I too see obviously the K to 12 sector is a big part of the solution to, uh, you know, what the next generation brings to the table. I would love to hear from each of you what it is that think tanks like R Street and organizations like the Institute for Security and Technology, how do they support the priorities set forth in the national cybersecurity strategy? Megan, let's start with you this time. There are three key areas that we're focusing on, but they are not limited to those three key areas. Um, So as I mentioned, IST convened the Ransomware Task Force, which was a public-private working group of over 60 organizations, and we issued a report in April of 2021. And one of the key recommendations from that report was this piece around operational collaboration. And so we've been working over the past two years and continue to work to help the private sector and the government work better together. One of the ways that we did that was by mapping the cryptocurrency payment ecosystem around ransomware incidents. And this year, we're really focusing on examining that map. We published it in November of last year. Uh, to see where there are pathways and points at which we have kind of a heat map of actors with the government and and a range of providers in the private sector space who, through lawful mechanisms, could really be more effective in disrupting the business model of ransomware. Um, Because we think really that this business model is not unique to ransomware per se. We believe that by pushing through ransomware, we can begin to show impact across the cybercrime ecosystem and and really, um, in some cases, uh, thinking about how nation state actors also abuse our our infrastructure. So that's one key element is is really working on the operational collaboration piece. We are shortly going to issue a paper around open source software security. And in that paper, we will make recommendations, three key recommendations. The first is shifting to a shared responsibility model where the actors in the open source ecosystem understand everyone's role and responsibility in cybersecurity in ensuring the the security of open source software. Second, that we redouble efforts to support existing frameworks, things like where the government is is pursuing uh, software build materials and thinking about how we might leverage those capabilities to bring additional security practices voluntarily to the open source software community. And the third is to re-examine some of these existing capabilities that we have, such as scoring systems that may not, in this day and age, uh, reflect the scope at which open source runs throughout our everyday lives, Um, and thinking about whether we need to reevaluate how scoring systems operate and the role that they play in securing open source software. So that's item number two. And then the third piece I would say is that we um, are fortunate to have a recent State Department alum on our team, Elizabeth Fish who is helping us on international engagement. And Elizabeth was one of the leads for capacity building when she was at state, and she's really helping us and bringing her experience and leadership to the work that we're doing to help take the ransomware task force recommendations and make them more globally accessible and available. 
One of the most recent examples of that is that about a week and a half ago, we released a document called the Cyber Incident Reporting Framework for Global Audiences. Um, and we think that that effort, along with other efforts that Elizabeth is leading, can be helpful in harmonizing the global response to issues such as ransomware. We know that that there are a range of reporting requirements around the world, and we hope that uh, by developing documents and, and recommendations like this incident reporting framework, we can help there to be some degree of harmonization and consistency across economies. I would just say one more thing. So maybe it's item number four. About five years ago, uh, I wrote a paper about using lessons from sustainability management to transform the cybersecurity ecosystem. And obviously, I'm delighted to see that that's something that, um, in particular, Director Easterly is pushing with her efforts over at CISA. One of the many benefits of thinking about cybersecurity through a sustainability lens is leveraging the similarities that we've seen in the environmental space. So if we think about environmental sustainability, we know that kids now know how to recycle. So in our conversation a few minutes ago about leveraging K through 12, if we can bring these kids up as, as digital natives who are secure digital natives, that will really, I think, help us have a terrifically more secure uh, ecosystem, internet ecosystem for the future. We are also looking at the recommendations that had been made in that paper about how do we operationalize sustainable cybersecurity, and we'll be making an assessment of those recommendations and publishing those results later this year. Megan and I definitely have some overlap in our interest areas, and they're doing uh, great work over at IST. Uh, so, but there's definitely key focus areas for us. Um, uh, I mentioned a couple already. I'll, I'll flag them, but then maybe mention two broader points. Um, obviously, the mention of data security, data privacy is critical to us. Uh, we view that as having a direct connection with national security and cybersecurity. Obviously, if we were to act on a bill like the American Data Privacy and Protection Act from last Congress, that's mostly consumer privacy related, but there are definitely data security and national security implications. And especially when we're looking at foreign adversaries and even countries of concern that are collecting, exploiting this data, uh, action is really timely. So it's thorough to see that. And obviously the Hill is not, you know, they're paying very close attention. So I think that's actually an area where the White House and the Hill could have a, a joint win together. Obviously the details are not as always to solve, but that's uh, definitely an area I think they could, you know, have some collaboration and move forward with. Uh, hopefully in a quick fashion. Um, but in terms of two broader points, and, and this is probably coming at it from my R Street mentality, it goes without saying this does take a more regulatory approach. And I, I understand the administration's position on that and, and their justification in there for that. Uh, my only pushback would be is regulation is not always the answer. I do think there needs to be a balancing act because we want to see cybersecurity increase, but we also want to be mindful of the burden it could have on industry. Um, so finding that balance is Maybe it's easier to say on a podcast like this, but I think that will be critical because it's it's we don't I, I don't want to see a scenario where we just add more regulation and more bureaucracy without trying to streamline it. I mean, even if you look at incident breach notification alone, we did research last year that found over two dozen federally issued mandates. So that is even just one small issue, and that's a challenge for industry to comply with. Um, and and relatedly, we don't want to see this become a compliance exercise. We're just putting so much time and energy into compliance with a new regulation that it's actually taking away resources for cyber uh, and increasing cybersecurity. And then just a, another point, I think, is there's a whole pillar dedicated to market forces um, in this. And, and one of the quotes that I just want to pull out is they said that market forces alone have not been enough to drive broad adoption of best practices in cybersecurity and resilience. I mean, just to be truthful, they do acknowledge that that is still the best way, but it may not be the full solution. I mean, when we put out wording like that, it initially makes me take a pause. So I think the implementation of that alone will be a really carry to look at. 
seeing what strategies are within the government's ability to help incentivize without taking too much of a hands-on approach. And I think there are a couple easy solutions. Like the IoT device labels, that's something that the National Security Council is actively working on. So I think that that just makes sense because that's something that a member of industry could adopt if they wish. Um, and that could be a signal to their consumers that a given device is safe and secure. Um, so I think that's a great, great method. Obviously, there's other areas, too, that are not as prominent in this strategy. That I, just because they're not listened to expand upon, I don't think should be ignored. One of those areas is state and local cyber. It doesn't get a lot of attention here. Matter of fact, only just a few shout outs. That is something, though, that should be a priority going forward. So, But overall, I think that it's clear there was a strong amount of work put behind this. And you know we're more than willing to support the effort going forward and, and helping address some of these areas that are potentially concerning for us. Um, you know, working with other phenomenal groups like IST as well. But it's my initial take, Casey. <laughs> I love it. And I, you know, I think it, there's so much value to these kinds of conversations, right? Because when these major national strategies are released, that it does create a lot of conversation, right? And I think that it's easy to feel overwhelmed and, um, and see, you know, legislation is dangerous or concerning. And I think, being able to express our shared ideas about, you know, the potential to achieve these goals and what's concerning and how we can maybe address those concerns is all positive and helpful and a healthy way to move forward. And, and it gives me hope. So I appreciate so much, Brandon and Megan, you joining me today. I'm excited to hear the work being done. And I am very hopeful that the strategic objective set forth helped to strengthen public and private partnerships and work toward that lofty goal of building a more robust and resilient digital ecosystem. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in. To find products and solutions related to policy and government and securing critical infrastructure, we invite you to visit rsaconference.com forward slash marketplace. Here you'll find an entire ecosystem of cybersecurity vendors and service providers who can assist with your specific needs. Please keep the conversation going on your social channels using the hashtag RSAC and be sure to visit rsaconference.com for new content posted year round. Brandon and Megan, thank you so much. Thank you, Casey. Thanks, Megan. Thank you both for having me.